If this is truly a creative industry, we should be talking about, well, what does this mean going forward? And how do we still keep the creatives that are the best storytellers in the world paid for what they're doing? How do we keep them empowered to do this? Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with Chad Nelson, and Chad is a three-time startup co-founder. You've been a creative director on a variety of different kinds of projects. You've got over 20 years experience, and according to you, you are an expert at building brands through wickedly cool content across any and all entertainment platforms. And also, we have added AI specialist to the LinkedIn profile and resume. So, Chad... This is going to be a really interesting conversation, and you and I have worked really hard to make this happen. Lots of bumps in the road, a lot of excuses to never actually get this on the record, all these things in life getting in our way, timings, calendars, but we're here because I think you and I both know this is going to be a pretty interesting conversation about AI. So really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Oh, well, thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. Uh, Yes, we've been trying to do this for a while now, and I'm excited that we're actually able to get this thing uh, going. So let's... Yeah, me too. dive in. All right. So for just a little bit of context, the way that you and I originally met is we sat next to each other on a panel that we did for Edit Fest last August that was all about artificial intelligence in the world of creative editorial in Hollywood. So that's how you and I initially connected. And we both kind of had that mutual moment afterwards. It's almost like the dating scene where you see somebody across the room and you see the other and you're like, we need to talk. Right. I just I knew in that conversation that there was something you and I needed to get so much deeper into than the things we could barely touch upon in that panel. So I want to go way, way, way deeper. But before we go super deep into AI and the creative process and all the things that you've learned, I actually want to start a little bit further back, learning a little bit more about the origin story and the kind of basic uh, the the various dots, so to speak, that we can connect in your previous life and your previous careers. Sure. 
Because one of the arguments that I've had about AI and continue to have is the idea that because of the emergence of artificial intelligence and creative fields, we're going to see most specialties, most highly specialized crafts go the way of generalization. And your resume, you are very much a generalist by trade and have been doing so many different things your whole career. So before we even talk about AI, I just want to talk more about you. Give me kind of the, the beat by beat of understanding all the different things that you've had the pleasure of doing throughout your career. In two minutes, let's go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tell me your entire life story in 90 seconds. Go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I've had a career that has always been around entertainment and technology. And so when I think about this, the, the, the joining of those two worlds, I, my career has kind of always been uh, built around those that that combination. I started with the idea that I would go through US, US, basically USC film and television um, and film school and like any kid in the 80s. You know, it's like, yo, it's Spielberg and Lucas and, the, you know, all those dreams and aspirations like I found so many kids had. But what I realized is when I finally got into school, I also knew quite a bit about computers and a lot more about what, what these computers could do in creating either interactive entertainment or help storytelling for you know more traditional forms of entertainment. And when the verge of the or the birth of the internet started, what 90, I mean early 90s, let's just say yeah, mid-90s, yep. Yeah. When the AOL discs were going out with thousands of hours or 10,000 free hours and all that, um, one of the things I found pretty early on is that. The studios, who are clearly, especially at that time, were the the uh, arbiters of all this content, really had no idea how to bring that content to the internet. And so I was actually working at Samuel Goldwyn at the time um, on a show called American Gladiators, you know, one of the first literally reality TV shows out there, which I thought was a lot of fun and a very interesting kind of career experience for my first uh, foray into into television production. But what I realized is the studio had no idea how to build internet content. They had no idea how to build a web page. They, you know, they, and they, yet, but they're the best storytellers in the business. And so one of the things I found with my roommate and I were like, if we, if I quit television production and we kind of put together a pre presentation of how to tell the studios how you could take their content and bring it to literally the beginnings of AOL and, and the early, you know, uh, old browser days. I mean, even pre-Yahoo. Um, I think we would be able to land a lot of different companies and a lot of different gigs, uh, and that would be a huge service. And so we did that, and that's how I started. I started a little company called Paradigm. We had about, I don't know, five to six designers from Art Center, and we were taking studio content and building out prototypes and visualization and, and eventually launching some websites for the very earliest days of the web. Um, I'll fast forward a few years. When real-time 3D technology started, you know, video games, you had things like Tomb Raider and Doom and Quake and some of those early games. But one of the things I found was no one was bringing 3D graphics to the web. And in addition, no one was bringing real-time streaming into 3D worlds. And so my CTO at the time uh, started this company, and he was, the I think, the first to do um, streaming onto polygons. And when Intel saw that, they funded us, and we basically produced um, a company called 8-Cylinder Studios, or 8CS, which was bringing 3D real-time graphics to the web. And then we sold that in 2001 to the company that made the codec that eventually powered YouTube. So in a way, it's like I've been in this kind of bleeding edge 
uh, like where technology is meeting entertainment and figuring out how to, I don't know, capitalize on it through actual, you know, technologies or products and services. Um, and so I'll fast forward to more recently. So when AI started becoming a topic, I mean, we've obviously had it in a topic for for decades. I mean, from 2001 and, and how and so forth. So it's, been, it's not like no one had even heard of AI, clearly. But when it started hitting mainstream, when GPT-3 came out, when OpenAI dropped that in 2021, that's when I started saying, oh, this AI thing could start being very interesting as it relates to storytelling, uh, especially in video games, where most scripts in video games had always been, you know, you got your seven token responses, unless it's a major character, and then you might actually get some story. But everyone else is like, hey, what are you doing? Or watch out. And then it's like you get these just token responses. They're like, well, it's interesting. GPT-3 could all of a sudden open up entire dialogue of what every NPC could have a history, just like you would see on the world, uh, like on the show Westworld. So that is when I started saying, well, what is this AI uh, generative and large language model future look like? And that's how I got introduced to OpenAI and started playing with tools like Dolly and, and so forth. And that's kind of what's led us here to this moment now. I love it. There's a hundred things I want to get into, but I have a random question. What does all this have to do with golf? <laughs> well, golf was funny because in the mid 2000s, I was saying to myself, how could I build a company that would allow me to go to golf courses around the world and have vacations <laughs> and get paid for it, essentially? And I realized that in the world of golf video games, they all either were very cartoony and looked like, like they're simple, like more miniature golf. And then there was the EA Tiger Woods product, which was on the PlayStation, but on the on the early days of the web, there was no golf game. And so I said, well, I had this idea about, I've been dabbling with digital photography. And I said, well, what if you could combine digital photography with laser scanning or LIDAR terrain maps and basically create a free-to-play golf game that allowed you to buy either equipment or enter tournaments and, and so forth. And I was like, I had this idea and it was before even free to play was a term. So it came up with this company called World Golf Tour with a couple other people. And we we essentially raised some venture capital money and, and we built the largest virtual golf community in the world. We had about 14 million players playing on iPhones or on the web, um, photorealistic versions of Pebble Beach and St. Andrews and so forth. And then we sold that to top golf in 2016. So yeah, so again, another example of like a career choice where I'm looking at new tech, how do we apply it in a new way uh, to essentially allow for new entertainment experiences? Yeah, well, the the pattern that I'm seeing is that it's an, I've got this specialization in this area of knowledge. Here's another completely different area of knowledge and you keep using the word intersection. What's the intersection of these? Where do they overlap, right? You're connecting all of these random dots. And this next question is going to seem random, but it actually isn't because I know you were kind of quasi joking, but I'm very serious about I want to know which came first. I've got this idea for this free play golf game, or I want to design a lifestyle around traveling all over the world yeah. and get paid to play golf. Which one came first? I think it was standing on a golf course in Mexico and saying, this is the life. 
and then taking some pictures with this new digital camera that I spent a lot of money on because back then, 2004 or five, they were you know stupidly expensive still. Took a picture of this golf course and I said, how in the world could I replicate this for others? Like how in the world could I do that? And that's where the spark hits. Because mm. you know when in life, when you say like, oh, that's an intriguing idea, how can I share it? How can I actually, you know, how can I tell you a story that you feel like you're gonna be engaged with? Or how can I create some moment or an experience that you feel like you can participate in. I mean, those are the things that all of a sudden inspire new ideas. And I think that's where it's funny because when we talk about AI and I know we'll get to this, but it's like, it's, those are the moments where if you don't have them in life, no, I mean, the AI will never produce those moments. You know, the mm -hmm. AI is only producing replications of things that's already been taught. It's never inspiring new ideas where it's like, to that point, I'm standing here. How can I share it? That wouldn't have happened if I'm sitting at a laptop just brainstorming with an AI. Yeah, agreed. We're, there's no question. A little bit later, we're going to get into exactly what you said, which is how do we differentiate artificial intelligence from human intelligence and from creativity? But I'm actually fascinated by this. So I'm going to totally go off script and I want to go even deeper into this because there's there's something really interesting that I see as a pattern here. And I think the, the pattern is similar to a lot of people, but there's one factor that's different, which is, ooh, I see the combination of this and this. That would be cool. I see the combination of this and this. That would be cool. What most people think after that is, I hope somebody does that. And you're saying, I'm going to be the one to do it. Where does that come from? Because you've just said, there's this and there's this and there's this. I'm going to combine them. I'm going to be the one to do it. And I think a lot of people, even if they have the spark of the idea, they never follow through. And you're a serial follow-througher. That's uncommon. Where do you think that comes from? You know, I, it, yeah, it's an interesting one because I think when I was growing up and you think about, well, who are your heroes? Who are your the, the a lot of people either use sports figures or maybe it's, you know, for me, it was Walt Disney. It was George Lucas. I mean, they, like George Lucas said, well, I can't make Star Wars without an effects studio. I'll just start an effects studio. Mm. You know, Disney is like, oh, I want to do animated stories or I want to make a theme park. Oh, well, let's create Imagineering or let's create an animation studio. And 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 they turned their ideas into businesses. And I've always been inspired. Richard Branson, another one of my big, you know, kind of influences where it's like, oh, Obviously, he came out of music, but then said, well, what if I started an airline? And because the airline travel, clearly he was not satisfied with. How do I make it more fun? How do I make it different and more transparent in terms of pricing models? And so I've always found that those individuals that that just once they have that idea that they figure out a way to make it happen. To me, that's like, oh, that's. I, they were the ones that inspired me. And so for when I, it's funny now, I've talked to some students and, and I'm kind of going out and talking to schools and so forth. I, I realized that, yeah, a lot of students just, they don't have that in them right now because they, they where they get inspired by is, oh, I could be an influencer or I could go in and, and essentially create my own channel. No, don't get me wrong. That is a business or that can be a business. And some of them could actually go on to great acclaim in doing so. But it's a very different type of inspiration that. I found I had when I was, you know, a kid and looking at those, if you will, titans of entertainment and of industry and saying, hey, I would love to do that with my career. Um, yeah. Replicate that somehow. That would be amazing. So I'm glad that I asked that because I, I didn't think that was going to be the path that got me to this next point. But now it makes so much more sense how you decided I'm going to make the first short film done completely with AI and how that intersects with the major part of your career as a creative director, 
with ideation. And I know that this is something you talk about a lot is the path of ideation and how many steps. So given that, and given that you just, you're like, you know what, I'm going to find a way to solve this. This is something that I want. Talk to me now a little bit deeper and more nuanced about the transition into learning about AI and how that intersects with all the work that you're already doing. Yeah. So I think what was found fascinating about how I personally got involved in AI outside of just reading about it or hearing podcasts like yourself or, or others and talking about it was when OpenAI dropped Dolly 2, that announcement in April of 2022. So now almost, I mean, we're closing in on over 18, 20 months ago, let's say, uh, maybe two years by the, you know, anyway, but the point is when it dropped that, I saw that maybe through a different lens than others did, which was, Oh, it's cool. It can make a avocado lounge chair or it could put a skateboard or a squirrel on a skateboard in Central Park just by typing it. And and a lot of people I know just thought of it as like a really cool party trick or like, you know, a little bit of a Wizard of Oz machine. But the way I immediately, as soon as I read that, I was like, this is, this will change the fabric of creativity. This is going to change how IP is developed. This is going to change how cars are designed or we pre-visualize anything. And I found that was so, but I didn't know if it was really true or not. So I wrote OpenAI, asked if I could get permission, and they, uh, you know, I found the right person eventually, and they granted me access when I basically said, hey, here's what I would like to do with it. Here's what I'm thinking about with it. I'd love to prove some theories. And so thankfully, they let me in. And and when I started playing with it, that's what I found was, uh, was it was basically not only meeting my expectations of being so transformative, but it was exceeding them in many ways in that I didn't realize it could handle emotion or simulate emotion as well as I thought it could, or as well, I mean, or as well as it did. And, and I I'll send you if you want for the podcast, but it's like, I had one of my first prompts was, and it was done this way. I'll start to say this first. It was done this way because they told us in the beginning, don't, do humans because of we're we haven't done all the bias training and secondarily we we are very concerned about deep fakes so and we'll kick you out if you break these rules so just don't do humans and you're good and so i was like okay that's great that's fine i can do that but i want to see if i could replicate human emotion and in the world of animation pixar dreamworks and so forth what did they do they take an object be it a, an animal or or a, you know a thing and they bring it personality and they and they use um they use that thing to convey emotion that we can relate to so i was very curious to see if these ai tools could do it so my first prompt was um a red furry monster looks in wonder at a burning candle I was like, oh, let's see if it does this. I mean, let's just, and I, you know, hit enter 15 seconds or whatever it was. And the image appeared and I was, I was truly floored because I wouldn't say it was the greatest monster design I'd ever seen, but what it did do is it captured wonder. And as an animation fan of animation, as a fan of Disney, as I mentioned earlier, and knowing what animators go through to become, you know, a, a, say for a CalArts graduate or even an animator at one of the major studios, it's that embodiment of that emotion that has to be read in literally microseconds that we can relate to it. And for the AI to get this so quickly, like day one, I was like, if this is the worst it's ever going to be, we're starting at a place that I didn't even anticipate. 
like literally. And so that to me is what set this motion, this kind of this idea in motion of, I would love to see if we could tell a film with these tools soon and, and figure out a way to do so. Well, I'm going to make sure that we have a link in the show notes. Uh, if you're willing to, I'd love to to share that very first uh, image yeah, that you got absolutely. from that prompt. But I also want to make sure that we put a link to your entire short film, Critters, which was essentially kind of the the tail end of this. And I want to talk more about that, but I want to stay right now with this idea of the idea, the, the ideation phase, right? So I want to actually break down the ideation phase a little bit in more detail from the creative director's perspective, because I think... Those at least that are in my field or that are more in the filmmaking field, we see things so far downstream that sometimes we're a little bit disconnected from like the initial pitches and the ideas. So I want you to break down if, if you were to have an idea similar to this or maybe choose another idea where before AI, before Dolly, here's what the ideation phase looked like. And now what it looks like with all the new tools that are uh, at your disposal. Well, let's just talk about traditional entertainment which it's all even say an animated series. So whether it's Critters or something else like it, nothing gets funded in animation, um, well, at least by one of the major studios, unless they can see it as a like a multi-product IP, like something that's going to either last multiple seasons, could go into do toys, books, other merchandise, and so forth. I mean, the investment in animation has always been so historically large that you need to have it be um, – I hate to use the term, but it's like it's got to be a transmutive approach. Otherwise, it's never getting greenlit. So how does that begin normally? Well, obviously it could start with some characters. It could start with some visual designs and some, you know, some funny illustrations of what, you know, these characters might look like. And then you hand those off to other conceptual artists and they kind of start to expand it and you hand it to some writers and they start to expand it as well. Or maybe you take the time and you do it yourself. But and then eventually it's like, okay, well, now we need to do a pitch deck. So let's let's go and create and hire someone to help us build out, you know, other merchandise. Um, you know, what would the what would the toys look like? What would uh, you know, interactive games look like? What would all the other aspects of this? So it feels like it's a multi-dimensional IP. So I could walk into a studio or streamer, et cetera, and say, hey, look at this IP. This is something that would be valuable to you, not just as a single episode, but clearly as something that could be um, far, with far more depth over far longer duration. That process could take months in, in the traditional sense if I was starting off. And I might need even a, a team of you know five, six people to really do that right, uh, just because of the nature of the tools and the specialty that would be required to actually do all the toy rendering or the other you know, video game conceptual, you know, concepts and so forth. And what I find now is if I am a creator, I still might need some expertise in certain areas. Don't get me wrong. But the time or putting those experts on these tools is enabling us to create at a, such a much faster rate that we don't need the giant cost of not only financial cost to you know, essentially, unless everyone's doing it for free. And secondarily, the time cost. We could work through ideas very quickly, get a pitch deck going, and actually go out in a far shorter duration. And to me, that is, uh, you know, if you're going to live or die by your ideas, don't get me wrong, like, you want to still be passionate about it. But if I think it's going to go, if I spend six months and it goes nowhere, I mean, that's six months of my life I just lost. And maybe along with a few other people, um, you know, that's, and if I'm doing it as a business, that's a pretty poor business decision. So, you know, I look at it as, you know, I'm in the creative business. So for me, I always kind of think about, well, what's the time and effort and the cost it's going to take for me to get my best ideas out? 
Um, and to even arrive at those best ideas, how long is that going to take? Uh, how much is that going to cost? And so I look at these tools as a huge uh, cost savings and time savings uh, vehicle, if you will, to to get me to those ideas and to those pitches much sooner. Mm-hmm. So I want to come at this from two completely different angles. And I'm guessing you probably talked about this more than once. And somebody's asked you this on a panel more <laughs> than once, maybe even the panel that we were on, yeah. right? But when you say that I have this ideation phase that goes from up to six months where you have an entire team and you're saving money and you're saving time, downstream from that is a host of people that could potentially be saying, but I'm the storyboard artist or I'm the the animator that's putting together the the pre-visualization or I'm the one that's creating the music that's going on your demo pitch or whatnot, right? So I want to start by looking at it from that angle, and then I want to look at it from the totally opposite perspective and argument. But when others have come to you and said, hey, Critters is great, or the the ideation phase being shorter is great, but what about us? It's a hard one because the film industry has gone through a couple of phases where, let's, let's just start with when it was film or even just film and television, two distinctly different paths. Clearly, that's why we have the Academy and, and the Emmys. I mean, it's like it was literally two different entirely production lines, whereas I think now you could argue that television is almost the same production. I mean, we're all using digital cameras. We're all using digital editing equipment, you know, non-linear. It's, I don't even know if they're really, from a creation standpoint, that different anymore. But the narrative structure is really the only thing that separates them. One is 90 to 100 minutes and it's self-contained. Right. One is right. episodic. But yeah, if you're looking at the nuts and bolts, the workflows are so similar. Yeah, I mean, and that's because the nature of just, I mean, obviously, and especially with digital, I mean, it's, Maybe television couldn't afford film, uh, and so they would shoot on video. But now, obviously, everything's digital, or at least most things are. So mm-hmm. uh, it is clearly blurred. Uh, but yes, I agree. The medium itself, or the 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 end result, might be that's where the variation occurs. That said, I look at it as we saw the early film world go into a digital nonlinear world. We saw effects go from practical and so forth. And then we obviously went to CG. Now, obviously we see practical effects making a resurgence because people really love that authenticity from it. Um, But we've seen jobs and roles on film productions change over the years. I mean, editors, I remember there was a, and you probably remember this from the the days when, when we went from reel to reel classic, you know, film techniques and editing to suddenly Avid releases a nonlinear editing solution. And, and even those tools were so primitive in the beginning. And there was a lot of anger about, ah, these tools are never going to destroy the art of editing. And I think you could at least say now there are more people editing content than ever before. Now, they might not necessarily all be classic film editors or certainly not doing, um, you know, major Hollywood productions. But around the internet and around the globe, certainly a lot of people are editing and learning the art of editing. And so I think that actually, I do like that. I do like the idea that some of these these roles and skills are a little bit democratized in the way that a lot more people can do them. And so thus, if I was interested in editing, I now actually have the ability to become an editor and maybe experiment and, and explore my art or my 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 voice, if you will, um, through that medium, and and maybe that actually lands me something down the road. I I do think there will be some jobs 
in the traditional sense that might actually start to go away, unfortunately. Um, but that happens every generation. Um, but new ones are going to occur and new new roles will happen. So one of the things I like to talk about and hope that things like even Critters does is helps inspire um, individuals that say, hey, I am interested in learning. I am interested in what you did. I went to film school. You know, I, I ended up in a career doing this, but I still have three story or scripts in my closet that I've been writing for the last, you know, X number of years. I would love to start to visualize them. How did you do it? You know, how could I start to try to do that? And so to me, that's that's where it does start to get exciting um, as opposed to the industry being so task oriented where it's like you have to pick your lane and that's all you're going to be for your entire career. And I, yeah, that's that's a tough one. But at the same time, I look at it and say, well, what's the you have expertise in something as well. So take that and learn these. You know, if you took these tools, what could else could you do with it? And to me, that's also what I try to do with at least in helping inspire and, and maybe people bridge whatever this awkward transition period it might be, um, because it is definitely going to be awkward for a bit. Yeah, it's it's going to be awkward. And I'm on the same page as you completely that there's going to be a rapid evolution of what the jobs actually look like, um, you know, what the roles look like. A lot of things are going to change. Um, but there's also a lot of data that says that there were at least short term, probably an elimination of a lot of jobs that eventually evolve into something else. Uh, and I don't remember the exact date, but fairly recently, Jeffrey Katzenberg came out with a statement saying AI is going to eliminate 90 percent of animation jobs. Right. That's maybe seems a little bit drastic. And I've yeah. got my own personal feelings about Jeffrey Katzenberg, but it's hard to argue that he knows what he's doing in the world of the animation business. Like that's that's one of his ex levels of expertise. Right. Well, and it's also interesting. I find that animation I mean, clearly I mean, Burbank and Los Angeles was the home of animation for decades. And now how much is being offloaded to offshore and uh, overseas? I mean, so we've already seen that business in a way, completely get reset. And that's a positive term, but I mean, but what or obliterated, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of domestic animation production, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, there's definitely been a globalization effect already in the industry. Um, yeah. My, and my feeling is, and I'm, I'm not an economist, so this is certainly not my area of expertise, but between post pandemic, so many people working remotely, everything that's happened with these industry negotiations, and now the way that Netflix has globalized its content and like Squid Game is the biggest thing in the world, including the US, we're going to see the globalization of film and television and animation workforces where it's not going to be one studio on a building with yeah. a bunch of people working. It's going to be everywhere. It's already happening, but I think AI is going to make it even more rapid. Um, but I, I want to zoom back in for a second. And like I said, when it comes to this idea of I've got this pitch that I want to put together, I took it from six months and building an entire team to give me a few days with some prompts and I can really knock something out. I want to argue from the opposite perspective in a second, but I have one more question. Um, and it's it may sound like it's almost an attack and it's totally not. But I want to get your opinion on this. If somebody were to say you have an ethical responsibility to be hiring and paying the people that would do those jobs instead of having the technology do it for you, how would you respond to that? 
my sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt Matt. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Well, where do we draw the line? I think, I mean, my, I'll tell a story as a way of answering this question. My grandfather came out of World War II, but one of the things I guess through, um, at some point during his time in, in, in serving, learned how to do printing for the military. Basically, was working in the print shop at times for, you know, whatever it might have been, you know, documentation or, or, or manuals. Who knows what? I, I don't know exactly. I don't remember. But when he came out, moved to Los Angeles and started print press, letter set print press, and basically was printing magazines or, or, or menus and, and brochures and all these churches had bulletins, like all this stuff that you just mm -hmm. needed printing. Um, and, and he did that for years. And then about 78, 79 noticed his business was starting to change. And this thing called the personal computer and a, a printer laser printer and originally a dot matrix printer came in. Now, luckily in his case, he had a pension and, you know, military and ex-military that is, and he's like, well, do I learn these computer systems or do I just say, Hey, this has been a wonderful career and, and retire. And ultimately that's what he did. But yeah, I mean, his business clearly could not endure the personal computer revolution. It was it was a changing, if you will, of the entire fabric of how we went about printing. And as much as I know, he could say, well, like, look, this like as society, like we all bought computers, we all bought printers. I mean, I don't think society owed my grandfather. No, no, no. We need to keep him employed and keep printers going. I, I found that it was a real point to me where I recognized and he recognized there is a shift that's happening. 
And as a human on this planet, either I figure out the next transition, i.e. in this case, learn these computers and figure out how to make a business out of that, or in his case, he chose to retire. Now, I don't think, I mean, we're going to get into some bigger questions on, on a, as a planetary level and a, and a socioeconomic level, what happens in this world when AI can do a lot of things? Where are we going to actually have the quantity of jobs that could support our planetary? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. I think it goes beyond Hollywood. Let's just put it that way. Oh, this goes way beyond Hollywood. Hollywood exactly. is the tiniest so, microcosm of how this affects the world. Couldn't agree more. Could, yeah. So to me, I think the question is, we know this is going to come. I think the idea of the genie being out of the bottle and putting it back in is not going to happen. So I think the real question is, is like, well, how do we really truly begin this transition? How do we actually start education? How do we start these discussions? And it can't be coming from just a place of fear and anger. And don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't feel fear or anger because it is a transition and change and change is hard. Um, but the reality is it's coming and let's start talking about it and let's start being very productive and proactive about it as an industry. And Hollywood, I think, is one of the most creative, clearly one of the most creative industries out there. Storytelling being uh, something that humans have been doing from the dawn of, you know, where we're sitting around fire and in caves. So if this is a creative, a truly a creative industry, we should be talking about, well, what does this mean going forward? And how do we still keep the creatives that are the best storytellers in the world paid for what they're doing? How do we keep them empowered to, to do this? I, I, those are the discussions I want to have. It's hard for me to say though, no, but we have to do it with decades old, if you will, um, maybe roles and or systems, um, because the reality is the systems and the, the, the tasks and the mechanisms by which we tell these stories will change. And we actually have to acknowledge that. Um, yeah, I just uh, don't I, any other way around it. No, and I, I I appreciate how deftly and delicately um, you you walked around a very sensitive topic. And if I were on somebody else's panel, I would have done the same. But because it's my own show and I can say yeah. whatever the hell I want, if somebody had asked me the same question, I would have said, no, they have no ethical responsibility whatsoever. This yeah. is something called progress, right? Yeah. Um, if it's about exploiting people because of the technology, yeah. that's a completely different conversation. But if it's a matter of I have this job that used to take me six months and with the democratization of the tools, I can do it in less time for less money. I do not have an ethical responsibility to the people specifically. It'd be like saying I have to keep riding horses and I'm going to avoid the Model T. So right. I feel let's, very, let's, very strongly about this. But let's go into this one though on this because I think – what I do have a choice on and where I do have the ability to ultimately say, well, what tools am I going to use and who are the what were the decisions made and how those tools were created and or trained? I have a choice in that. And if I know a, a, a tool has basically exploited ArtStation or other IP holders and yet I'm trying to create IP, I am in a way, <laughs> biting the yeah, hand. That's feet. a very different conversation. I could not right. agree so with to you me, more. Like what Adobe is doing and saying, look, we're only using images that we license. We're only using things and we're going to try to create a compensation model. And maybe it's not fully you know, executed yet, but they're at least in this kind of taking a very strong ethical stance to say, look, 
we cannot succeed if we're literally killing the backs or riding the backs of all these people that created all these this training data for us um, without giving them any sort of compensation. So I, I look at that and say, well, if you are going to start something new, maybe think about what tools you use. Just because maybe one tool set is producing the best outcome or the best output, um, but yet you know it's literally scraped art station and IP, yeah, you might want to think about that. Because that 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 is kind of like you can't you can't go both ways on that one. Yeah. And I agree with that. So when it's a matter of do you have an ethical responsibility to continue doing things the old way? Because like you said, if, if I if I'm the local church, do I have the ethical responsibility to keep hiring the manual print setter versus yeah. getting a laser printer? No, that's evolution. That's progress in technology, right? It'd be like saying, well, I still use the telegraph because I refuse to use the internet. How's that going for you, right? right? Right. But yes, when it comes to where's the data coming from, I think that is a huge, huge issue. And every time that I've experimented with any kind of model, and I'm not even remotely at the level that you are, but I dabble. One of the first questions I always ask is, where is this training data coming from? Because I'm very interested in building custom GPTs, which we may talk about a little bit down the line. Mm -hmm. I guarantee we're talking about it off the record mm -hmm. afterwards. Mm -hmm. But if, if I know what the data is, for example, if it's all of my data, crazy excited about that. But if I'm just going to go into Dali and say, show me a red critter, it's like, but how do you know what the cr red critter should look like, right? Because with critters, it doesn't look like a Pixar movie but it doesn't not look like a Pixar movie. Yeah. So how are you able to navigate all that in the very early days of experimenting with this? Well, I think for me, because I knew a little bit about, a little bit, I'm not an expert by any means, but I knew a little bit about copyright law and creation of IP. I knew if I just typed in a prompt and that was it, and I did nothing more and just was like, oh, red furry critter, you know, in a forest. And, and first thing that pops up is like, great, let's put it in the film and animate it. I didn't, I didn't really do anything in that case. Like, so why did it, why would I think I would even own that? Did I personalize mm -hmm. it? Did I bring my own voice or my own kind of, if you will, creative instincts to it in any way? And I know at least, at least, I knew enough to say, well, if that's all I did, one, as an artist, I'm not really doing much. And number two, as a copyright uh, holder, I, I'm not sure I could even copyright that. It turns out, actually, that's kind of where the U.S. is right now, that if mm -hmm. you just do a prompt and you just take that prompt, that first result and show zero modification to it, U.S. Copyright Office will never, you know, at least as of right now, they won't grant that as a copyright. The prompt is not enough. Um, it's still based on derivative works. doesn't matter where those derivative works came from. It's still based on some sort of derivative. Uh, and, and we need, or at least the way our copyright office works, is that a human has to be the thing that creates that variation to a certain degree. And no one knows exactly where that line is yet. But we have to at least have some sort of human involvement in creating that, that variation of whatever has inspired them. And just the... Mm -hmm. So a first gen does not do that. So for me, it was uh, luckily Dolly from very, like literally from the day they launched it, it had in painting. So you could say, all right, red furry creature, you know, sitting in a forest. I could go in and take the eyes and just say, well, let's change the eyes. Here's how I want to change the eyes and try, you know, 15 or 50 different eyes. I could change its mouth. I could change ears, horns, et cetera. And that's what I did. I did that for every character until I found the one that I, or a version of it that I felt like this really embodies kind of what I'm thinking about. 
Um, and that means I've at least personalized. I've done something artistically to take it away from just being uh, the, the first random number slot machine you know, pull uh, generation to at least me as an artist going in and, and customizing it to my liking. Um, and I, I documented that. And so we're right now we're in the process, maybe by the time this is done, but um, we'll see if the copyright office grants me uh, a copyright on the, the origin of the characters, because I'm trying to show all the, that work. Um, who knows? We'll see what happens, but that could be a good follow-up too. Um, it could definitely they, be a good follow-up. If, if, if I'm, they no, deny no. it, why they denied it, or if they accept it, was it because I helped and I could show a, a proof of, if you will, of transformation from the original works? I'm very yeah. curious to see where that ends up. I'm going to be fascinated to see where that ends up as well. Uh, I now want to look at this from a, a very different perspective. Same idea of this ideation phase and shortening it. So the the original argument was, let's say that for hypoth uh, for hypothetical sake of conversation, this is a six month ideation phase to create this. I was able to do it in a week. Look at all the cost and time I eliminated. I look at the number of jobs that were eliminated, right? So in some cases, I think that's true. However, my much larger argument is that in most cases, the answer, the, the question is, I have an idea and it would take this six months to put together in this budget and this amount of time. Well, that's never going to happen. So zero dollars ends up being spent. No time ends up being spent and no jobs are lost. And what I'm seeing with the democratization of this technology is now we get to ideate things that we simply couldn't before. That's the other right. side of the argument is no jobs were lost because no jobs would have been created because right. it wasn't doable by anybody except Pixar or Disney or DreamWorks, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's, I definitely agree with that. The other side of it, I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit as well, which is the Hollywood system. Unless I'm a very established name and I have street cred, if you will, and or the cachet to basically say, oh, well, here's an idea I want to do. And the studio says, great, fund it. We love it because we want to be in business with you. The journey to that point typically is, hey, here's my idea. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, we'll take it to one step forward. You know, we'll get we'll green light you for one phase of development. And so then you kind of go through that phase and you're trying to then fight for that next approval and then the next approval. And really, to a certain degree, I'm wondering, like, how often does the initial vision of the person that's conceiving this idea get mutated, modified and, and altered just to keep it going, you know, just to keep going through all these various gates? And is that at the end of the day making a better product or is it making the more watered down, you know, kind of, if you will, design by committee approach to entertainment? And I'm kind of curious to see that maybe over the years, as this product or this process becomes a little more mature, might it actually start to produce more, we'll call it higher quality, more original vision, you know, out of the gate? Uh, in our shows and entertainment, I, I, I'm kind of fascinated to see if that actually ends up being the proof point or does the system still, if you will, water it down and we we kind of get this, um, I don't know. I mean, there's how many times have we seen shows where like, oh my God, that's a great concept. And you see it and you're like, 
I don't know what happened on that, but (laughs) it's certainly, there's no way someone wanted to do that when they set out to do this. Like you can, I mean, when you're in the inside, to your point, when you make the sausage and you know kind of sometimes how the business works just to keep the funding going, I'm hoping, I would love to see that the actual filmmaker's voice can get further into the project in this process. I don't know, that to me is a hope. I, I agree. And I, I always want to look, I always want to be cautiously optimistic and hope that that's the case. And I think that there's, there's absolutely a world, especially on the development end, where when you have less cooks in the kitchen and less ideas uh, or less ideation phases and less notes in between and funding phases, my guess is that there is a world where you get much more original, more fleshed out pitches. But no. once they say you're greenlit, it's still the same system from there until it ends up on TV or in the theater. Yeah. So I'm not as optimistic unless the system downstream changes more. But I even want to look at that from a slightly different perspective, which is now that we, we're going to have this democratization of creativity in a certain respect where like I have no artistic sensibilities whatsoever. But for me to be able to go into Dolly and create some images is now very, very simple for me. So like as we talked about, it's not a matter of I've taken jobs away from people because I would have done this big pitch. I thought I would never pitch this. I don't even know where to start. Now there's a tool that democratizes it. No different than cameras are $10,000 versus I have a camera on my iPhone. Now everybody can do it. And my concern is that we're going to see a rapid race to the bottom or to the mediocre, just like we have with like we millions of people can edit now. There aren't millions more amazing editors and storytellers out there. Just everybody and their mom and their dad and their uncle can cut a Little League video montage. Right. So I think that there's that danger where we're going to have some people that truly break through and have original ideas that they couldn't ideate before. And there's going to be a lot of garbage. I think we already have a good case study of this called YouTube and TikTok, where anybody not watching, I just about did a spit take. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I don't, I would argue ninety nine point something five ninety nine point, you know, no, actually probably ninety nine point nine is unwatchable, or at least unwatchable to you. I mean, and also like, you know, meaning like we all have things that we enjoy, but there's going to be the bulk of what YouTube is filled with or TikTok's filled with is things I wouldn't even really even want to consume. Um, but somehow the algorithm knows enough about you that it kind of tries to give you what it knows you like. So thus you do consume something and it keeps you in there. But most of those channels are just filled with noise. I mean, just video noise. Uh, these AI tools are just going to continue that. And and I, I hate to say it. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of we're going to get a lot of fluff. We're just going to get a lot of it. But we already have that now. <laughs> to your point, an iPhone, an iPhone can make anyone a journalist or a documentary documentary filmmaker or or a photographer. Or, yeah, whatever. Cinematographer. I mean, yeah. So, so we already have that. Um and you know it is also funny that I I find like just like when remember when COVID Everyone was like suddenly became adventure experts or everyone suddenly like, like, oh, I can go get my sprinter van and drive around the country. And suddenly I'm a travel blogger um, just because that's what people could do. Didn't necessarily mean we needed more of them. It's just honestly, people are bored and that's what we got. I feel like there's a lot of people that are experimenting with AI now and we're getting a lot of like, we'll call it the dystopian AI future stories. Um it's almost the last thing I'm going to see now if I watch a runway or 
Pika Labs or one of these new videos, it's like, this is another robots and dystopia story. I'm like, <laughs> we already have enough. But um, but yeah, I know we're going to get a lot of noise. Definitely. And I think that did, other than the the frequency of the noise or just the sheer volume, because you said, I think that's going to continue. I think it's going to continue times a thousand. I think we're going to see such an amplification of mediocre content at best. But I also think in the highly specialized fields, it's going to eliminate the careers of the mediocre because those that truly have the specialized storytelling skills, animation skills, draw, whatever the skill yep. is, if you're truly great at it, the the technology is not going to replace you. You just have to evolve with the workflows and the, yep. the expectations. But there's going to be so much mediocre at best and just garbage that it's going to take more effort to make sure that your signal is above the noise. You know, and I feel, I feel like we're already having that. We're seeing that now, too, with with even TikTok and YouTube and that uh, or Instagram and Reels. In that I, in my daily life, I have only so much entertainment time or bandwidth anyway. So there are going to always be the things that I'll dedicate the two hours or the three hours for the next Scorsese film. You're like, yep, I'm sitting down. It's going to be a dedicated night. I'm going to watch that. And then there's that point of like, hey, like if you grew up in the 80s and 90s and you're like, well, what did we watch? We watched a lot of bad TV and a lot of good TV, but we watched TV because there was no really internet entertainment yet. And, but what we're seeing now is that a lot of that, to your point, mediocre or even just like bad television, that's all diverted to the internet now. Like that's kind of claiming most of that audience. Um, so I feel like that's, we're already seeing that being affected. Um, and thus Hollywood is going to be, still have to focus on, Either you you build those tent poles as big as you can or as high, you know, continue, continue excuse me, continue to focus on those production values um, or with the talent that allows you to tell the, the story in the best method possible. Um, uh, or you take a world that's beloved and this, the Star Wars strategy that Disney's doing or, or others where you're like, you're continuing to expand it. And thus the person can continue to live in that world or that IP or that universe in a way that they couldn't before. Um, but yeah, I think most mediocre, like, I, I don't know what I want to watch. I just want to watch TV. I feel like that's just gone to the internet. Yeah, and I would, uh, I both agree, but I think that there's a flip side to it, which is that similar to kind of this democratization of access to these new technologies, there's been such a glut and an overproduction of so much streaming content in the race to acquire users that there's a lot of mediocre crap on premium streaming services too. Yeah. It's not just the internet. Yeah. And because of that, there are some really amazing shows that are getting lost now that probably wouldn't have gotten lost a decade ago. Like I've made the argument that if Breaking Bad came out today, it would be a flop. Nobody would find it. But back then it was right on the edge of when we still had appointment television and we still had conversations at the water cooler. I think Breaking Bad would disappear if it came out today. It has nothing to do with the show. It's one of the most brilliant shows ever. You know, the other thing about Breaking Bad is I also wonder, because it was at the same with Mad Men, those shows came out when streaming was starting. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it didn't have the audience in season one. And maybe it kind of had a little bit of word of mouth going into season two. But by the time season three came out, people were able to go back and watch the entire season on this early streaming networks or the early stream, you know, and basically Netflix mm -hmm. in, in early days. Um, 
And I think that's what helps some of those shows really find a massive audience. Um, it would have been interesting if they didn't have that. I'm trying to think of a good example live and I can't think of one. Uh, well, like The Wire, for example. Mm -hmm. How many times have you like, oh, The Wire, brilliant show, right? And they're like, oh, I never saw it. I didn't have HBO at that time. But then until HBO Max and some of the other systems came out that allowed you you the only other way was to buy or rent those DVDs and that didn't really get mass appeal. And so I think that show probably could have had more life like a breaking bad, but it didn't have the vehicle by which for people to discover it. Um, so it was in a way almost too early uh, for that kind of switch, if you will, in terms of viewing habits. Yeah. And the, the reason I bring this up, we could easily just talk about shows on streaming and this and that. I, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but it's not a tangent yet. And I want to share why, because we're already seeing this gluttony of content. Imagine what's going to happen when we can make it faster or go to another level. And it's I don't know enough about the te technology to know how soon this is coming. But you pick up your remote and you say, show me a uh, show that's 90 minutes where uh, there's a panda and it looks like Tom Cruise and I'm with uh, Tom Cruise and the panda and we're going to Fiji Island, yeah. right? But what AI is going to do is create just this gluttony of all this new content. And for me, it's a question of both how do, how do we differentiate ourselves and our human intelligence from the artificial intelligence but if we want one of my favorite quotes that I share all the time is the Gretzky, Gretzky quote about don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going to be. You talk about in a Washington Post article about how, yes, and we've talked about already, AI is going to replace jobs. It's going to do it in Hollywood. It's going to do it in tech. It's going to do it in journalism. It's already doing that at a mass level in social media marketing, but it's also going to potentially create even more jobs. What are your thoughts, at least about in the, the arena we're talking about now, what are the jobs that don't exist or that are being created that we train ourselves to be able to do a year, two years, three, five years down the road? Yeah, it's it, this one's an interesting one. And I wish I had the silver or the magic ball, crystal ball that like, you know, Hey, here's what you should learn. And then well, I was going to add a quick yeah. disclaimer, which is P.S. Neither of us have any idea what we're talking about. And we're completely full of shit. So having said that, yeah, let's figure yeah, this out. Yeah, shall I mean, we? Look. I remember even just six months ago, people were saying, oh, you need to hire a prompt engineer for your company. I'm like, okay, maybe like, but GPT, the latest version is basically making prompt engineering kind of automatic. So like that was a flash in the pan. Um, you know, I just think these tools are evolving so fast that it's hard to say, oh, well, you need to learn this and and thus become an expert at it. Because honestly, six months from now, I just don't know. I really mm -hmm. don't know. Like runway is great. I love runway. I don't know if I mean once Adobe enters the fray, and After Effects can do everything that runway can. Are we still using runway? I don't know. I mean, it's gonna be hard to say because yeah. Adobe, Adobe will have licensed video libraries. You know, like they're gonna make sure it's all you know legit data that studios can use because they know that's the business of of you know distributing content is it has to be licensable material. So yeah, I don't know on that one. I wish I could give you a better answer on that. I will well, say I've, that, that I've you, got a couple of thoughts, but I'm gonna let you keep going. Yeah, no, first. But I was gonna say, I want to go back to something you did say though. I am not a believer though in this notion of hey, just show me some entertainment. Enter button, go, and then I'm going to commit to 90 minutes of a slot machine pull of, of the AI. I do think, and don't get me wrong, I think that it can create 
something, but that's a very one. That's a very expensive compute. That that compute is not free. Someone's paying for that. And right now we're looking at a long time before that computes so dirt cheap that it's not even like three to seven dollars. I mean, it, it it's going to be expensive for a while. So that to me is a number one factor. Number two is if I did that the first time and the entertainment was great, and then I said, hey, you should watch it, but you actually go and watch it, it might not be the same experience because the algorithm would change it for you. And thus, I think that whole notion of shared storytelling and shared experiences, which we that's one way we connect as humans, starts to go away. Now, in advertising, maybe that's better because you're just trying to sell me a car and what you would like in a car versus what I like in a car might need different ads. And I think that will say a lot of. But I just don't know in entertainment and storytelling if not having that shared experience will really work. Secondarily, I think the notion of... of I, I really like the idea that a good storyteller has thought through, crafted, and hopefully taken the time to figure out the, the best version of the story they want to tell. And that's what's being presented to you versus the algorithm saying, well, let me just give you that 90 minutes thing. I'm just going to go through the chain of commands and boom, we're going to render it. And now you watch it. I don't know if I do that. And I first, first time I see it, it's okay. And the next time I see it, it's not good. I'm probably never doing that again. Cause I'd rather have someone curate and tell me the best story that they can. Um, and that's how certain filmmakers become famous is because we know they're good storytellers. I just don't see that really as much. Um, I don't, could it happen down the road? Yes. Do I see that in any near future? Certainly not in the next 10 years. At least that's my opinion. Yeah. And I, I, I want to go deeper into this idea uh, that I brought up previously of what we can focus on where the puck is going to go next. But I want to dig into this a little bit deeper. And again, have no idea about any of the technology, where it's going. I'm just pontificating and have no clue. Um, I, I can't imagine how poorly this is going to age in five or 10 years. Uh, but having said that, there's a couple of things that I consider. The first of which is that, yes, as far as cost is concerned, like you said, to get it to the point where you can generate a 90-minute piece of content based on my criteria, we're not even close to that yet. Yeah. But here's here's one of my concerns. Uh, and I don't know if it's that big of a concern. I just want to see uh, what your thought is because you're so ingrained in this, is that for us, we grew up pre-internet. We remember what it's like to have collective shared storytelling in a theater. We didn't have the internet. We had appointment television. Everybody was watching the Seinfeld finale and talked about it the next day or friends or whatever it is. Yeah. But my kids coming up, my son, not so much because I've done my best to educate slash indoctrinate him on real movies. My daughter will not sit through a TV show or a movie. She loves YouTube shorts. Yeah. So from her perspective, I don't think she's ever even going to prompt for a 90 minute movie. She's yeah. going to say, show me a three minute prank video where X does this to Y in Z setting. Right. And that's going to be a lot easier and cheaper because she's never really experienced shared collective storytelling the way that we have. And it's going to take time to get there. But as the new generations grow up and the technology matures, one of my fears is does long form storytelling just start to disappear? And I don't know, but I'm genuinely concerned about that. Uh, yeah, in our too long didn't read world. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I had a conversation with one of my good friends the other day, um, who movie industry, you know, our movies, the new opera, you know, mm. if we, we look back at them with great respect and there's still a community for it. 
And that community still heralds it as one of the great art forms of its day and appreciates it, but it just doesn't become or retain the mass media kind of form of, of art that where it began. That might happen to point your daughter. Like she might never say, oh yeah, a Scorsese three and a half hour movie, the Irish, like, sure. I can't wait to dive in. That might literally be the last thing she wants to do. And I'm not saying she doesn't have a great taste in what she, but what she likes and what she grew up, the, where her reset or foundational point is, is not at all, as you put, said, where we started. So yeah, I, I, I do. Yeah. I have no idea where this next younger generation, um, what their, their, what their high art will be mm -hmm. <laughs> Just put it that way. Yeah. Um, it's, and yeah, and I don't even know how, yeah, the shared experience. I mean, we, we live in a spoiler alert society right now because no one's, I mean, outside of sports. And even then I have all sorts of friends that like, don't tell me the score mm -hmm. because I'm going to watch it later. <laughs> you know, in the day. And you're so you like, even that you kind of just have to say, all right, well, I don't say sports scores or outcomes until I know they bring it up. And so it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, we're already kind of living in this weird self-curated edited world. Um, yeah. I, I, it's going to be fascinating to see what this next generation finds as the, their, their new art form in this. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Well, speaking of not only the next generation, but the current generation, I want to go back to at least a couple of my thoughts about how we go to where the puck is going to be next mm -hmm. and we skate there. And the reason I bring this up is because I know it's an area that you already have some specialty and you even teach it. I believe that we need to stop focusing on the things that are changing all the time and we need to focus on the things that stay the same. And from the perspective of being a creative and being a storyteller, one of the things that doesn't change is your ability to communicate your ideas. And I think that if it's a matter of let, let's use something that's really, really simple. I am a, a rotoscope artist 
And my entire day all day long is manually putting in the dots and mapping out people for green screens or whatever the visual effect is, right? Their, that specialty is going to go away. There's no question that that's going away and rapidly. So we bring up runway, right? So mm -hmm. somebody can say, I'm going to go from being a manual rotoscope artist to being a runway rotoscope artist. Yeah. You're replacing one specialty with another specialty that's just as dangerous of disappearing. Yeah. My feeling is that if we focus on the skill of communication, and in this case with AI, it's being able to communicate with prompts. And this is actually a course that you have on LinkedIn Learning yeah. is how to prompt and communicate with Dali. Mm -hmm. We've needed to communicate since the beginning of human history. I believe those that rise to the top are the ones that learn how to communicate and refine prompts with any AI program. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to, I mean, the AIs are only as knowledgeable as what they've been taught. And I think it's very funny when I've worked with certain individuals, like say in the fashion business or the um, interior design business, and they refer to things like some 1960s Italian ceramic designer. And then we try to put that into the AI and we realize the AI has no clue of that certain designer because they didn't grow up in the, that designer was in the sixties. They're not in the digital era. And, the, and if they were, unless they were really incredibly popular, there's probably not a lot of source material on Pinterest and others for those systems to have scraped. To me, that's actually kind of cool when that happens. That means you found like almost like a hidden gem of knowledge that it's kind of nice that it's not in the public domain and thus just in the system that can be replicated. Um, but it also is kind of a fascinating thing because it really makes you realize that these systems um, are going to be what is perpetuated and rise to the top are going to be the things that the algorithm determines are, are the most popular. So the only way you can defeat that is by having a knowledge and specific knowledge of things that are potentially more obscure, more unique, um, more nuanced. Versus just relying on, oh, well, show me the interior of a living room in this modern house. And it's just going to give you the most popular, what it thinks is the most popular result. But if you're going to make something exceptional, you need to know how to ask for that. Which means you have to have the knowledge to know how to ask for that. You need to know how to know the designers. Or maybe it's even down to the lenses that you would want to actually, quote, capture that. Um, so that, to me, goes back to your statement from very early on or, about just general knowledge. Um, and it's interesting you ask this too, because I, I was just speaking to a, a number of students the other day, uh, about, um, just AI and, and education, art education and design. And one of them came up afterwards and asked me, well, how do you, how, what advice would you give for someone like myself to stand out as an artist? What would make me stand out? And I said, well, look, um, you're in, she was in a design uh, program. I said, well, look, there's probably what, 50 to, or sorry, 70, 80 courses that you're, you're, you know, you have to take with a couple of deviations along the way, maybe in general electives, but you have your pretty much list that every classmate of yours is going to take. My advice would be figure out what's outside your comfort zone and take those courses. Like if you don't know anything about typography, for example, take some typography courses, just learn the basics of graphic design or maybe improv or communication, you know, like maybe a debate team. Those are the, gonna be the things that make you all of a sudden far more interesting later in life and also stand out than just the people that have just taken just the standard curriculum. And I feel like that is also what opens up a host of new experiences that I think as any creative would find that when you find yourself in those uncomfortable zones, 
it lights up your brain in a different way. And maybe it is fear and maybe you don't like it. And so you, you, you reject it. But what I find is that you, you do learn something from it. And then that influences your, your creativity in some new way that was unexpected. And that's what makes you more unique. Yeah, I think that is amazing advice. And I, as you were, had mentioned the question, I'm like, ooh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure exactly how I would answer it. So I'm not sure I can beat yours because yours is really good, but maybe I would just add to it, which is that in order for you to stand out, number one, you need to have life experiences that you can bring to your storytelling because ultimately, like you said, storytelling exists for us to understand the human experience collectively as humans. And if you don't experience life, you're just going to be regurgitating everybody else's work, which AI is not the first tool to do that. You can be a film student that watches all of Scorsese's movies and then you write a script and it sounds just like a Scorsese movie. Everybody knows the student in film school that did this, right? Yep. Yep. There's nothing new or original about it. There's no emotion to it because you're thinking, I've seen all this before. And there's if, if you had lived the mafia experience in the 30s, it would feel different. It would be more nuanced, but you just regurgitated what's out there. So AI is just the next tool doing that. But if you can bring life experience and empathy and your storytelling, that to me is one of the things that sets you out. And also like just to double down on what you said, it's generalizing those life experiences and generalizing your skills because if every student takes 101 and 205 and 378, well, if you're the one, like you said, that's coming in with experience in typography or debate, that's what sets you apart. And I would yeah. guess that you, you know this story already, but for those that might not, um, one of the reasons that the Mac became the Mac was because Steve Jobs took a random calligraphy class mm -hmm. and he learned about fonts. And that's how the Mac stood apart from the IBM and the DOS and the Windows and everything else. And it had that elegant look because he took one calligraphy class. And that if you one remember, choice changed the world. Yep. I was going to say, and if you remember their advertising, the it, it was said, hello. And it said, mm -hmm. hello and cursive. And that cursive was because no other PC at that point could even do cursive. And it's back to your point, reemphasizing, because he took something that put him out of his comfort zone and gave him some new knowledge. I think that's just a great example of it. It's also why we also make fun of things like the Hallmark Channel and like, say, the Christmas holiday movie season. Mm -hmm. They're all like that actually is literally what would be the equivalent of the human equivalent of an AI generated network. I mean, it's mm -hmm. probably the closest thing we have to most predictable, most expected, you know, like cardboard cutout of characters. And don't get me wrong. There's an audience for it. And there's a reason why people like it because it is just popcorn, feel good television in many ways. But that said it, it we all know the formula and yeah. that is what works for it and, and what makes it work. But uh and an AI could certainly do that too. Learn that. Yeah. And that's and to to me, if we're gonna use the the Hallmark or the, you know, the Netflix Christmas movie or whatever it is, it serves a very specific purpose. And mm -hmm. it's something that we always make fun of. But what I found interesting about it, they've actually done studies on it. And it's the dependability and the comfort of already knowing what's going to happen. It actually improves people's well-being and can reduce depression. One of the reasons that we rewatch shows over and over and over, like I essentially have four sitcoms that are just on a, a loop for whenever I just kind of want to decompress is what I call my palate cleansers. Yep. It's either Friends, Seinfeld, Parks and Rec or The Office. It's like, which one's next? I've watched all of them over yep. and over, but there's actual science that shows that it can improve our well-being and reduce depression because we already know what's going to happen and we take comfort in it in a world of vast uncertainty. So knowing that, 
The thing that's safe is doing work that isn't repeatable, that isn't formulaic. If you're thinking, where can I go and where can I skate to where the puck's going to be next? Hallmark Christmas movies probably isn't the best place because that's going to be pretty easy to replicate because it is paint by numbers, which again, is not a bad thing. It is what it is and it serves a purpose. But if you really want to stand out against it and you want to make a place, then you need to find an area that is not repeatable, that is not formulaic, because otherwise AI is going to take over all of that in given time. It also kind of, it says to me too, as an artist, and certain filmmakers are good with this and have certainly done this. And then others, and I'm only going to pick on, say, Wes Anderson here for a minute because we've now seen numerous AI Wes Anderson versions Mm -hmm. of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings and and so forth because he had such a signature style that it was somewhat repeated that Mm -hmm. it almost became pattern recognition, if you will, for these AI systems. And thus we could just do the merge, if you will, Mm -hmm. you know, the combination. Um, And it's interesting now because... I'm not going to say that Wes Anderson's not a great filmmaker or certainly that he shouldn't continue making films, but it's almost like in this new world, as a filmmaker, you almost would have to continue to be evolving. Otherwise, these systems might make you very generic very quickly Um, because once you are repeatable and and an AI could be trained on your, if you will, look or your style, Mm -hmm. Uh, it will be hard to, to continue to replicate that and I think maybe even find audience if it that is all you do. And I think that's going to be also where it's going to be interesting is because then it means you have to have more general knowledge again so that you can continue to evolve your own storytelling and your craft as opposed to just kind of relying on your best hits. Yeah, um, and, that, and that to me is where, and I, we don't need to go back into this again, but I just kind of want to put a point on this in case anybody is screaming uh, in their car or while they're working out right now. This is also where I think we have to be very careful about the ethical implications and the copyright infringement, yeah. because I believe I have no right to say create this image in the style of Tim Burton. Like Tim Burton spent a lifetime developing that style such that if I put that prompt in, people would know my prompt without reading my prompt. They're like, oh, that's like Tim Burton, right? That's that's an immense amount of credit to what Tim Burton has created, but it now makes him vulnerable. And those are the kind of protections that I think are so vitally important, where we're protecting those ideas and that look. Even if it isn't like a, a direct image or something he painted or created, to me, there has to be a way to protect the IP of this is my signature look or feel, but it's also very complicated. I've, in some of my early prompt and or courses on this that I've taught and in lectures and so forth, I've actually, it's funny, I use Tim Burton because I'm like, I can actually type in a prompt, I like a haunted house in the style of Tim Burton. And most of the engines outside of, I think, Adobe will give me a house in the style of Tim Burton. Um, What I kind of say is we also have responsibility as an artist because I can prompt that, sure, but it doesn't make me a good artist. That just makes me someone that can copy. And if you really want to be a good creative and a good artist and, and really have some unique angle to your voice, if you will, Doing that is not going to stay going back to this point, standing out. You're not going to stand out at all. All you've done is emulated someone else's work. And that to me doesn't make you anything that's uh, original and certainly not something that probably is going to garner that much respect. So if you really want to stand out, you really want to develop your voice, you really want to be a unique storyteller, then you got to bring something to it just because now I can go get a book on Tim Burton. I could go see all his films and that probably will influence me. I mean, there's no way it would not. 
Let's put it that way. So just even consuming Tim Burton's films or seeing how he's, you know, his sketches and his art of books, for example, I will get something from that, that it might become a derivative. Um, but also because of the nature of these systems, it's not going to be a one-to-one copy because I'm going to at least bring some other information to it when I kind of use that knowledge. And I just think that, that we have to make sure that the, the artist's responsibility in this equation uh, remembers that. Well, and the, the thing that I immediately thought of was the Pablo Picasso quote, which is that good artists borrow, but great artists steal. And now we've got this tool to make this so much easier and more ubiquitous. And that's the challenge because you could say, well, all creativity is just copying. I've talked about this on numerous podcasts where there's there's nothing left to create. There's nothing from the origin of creation where it didn't exist to it does exist. Creativity is combining things. I mean, I'm stealing a quote from Steve Jobs, right? So then how do you draw the line between, like you said, I've watched every Tim Burton 50 times and I'm a production designer or I'm a, a, an art designer and I draw sets. You might not be copying it directly, but you're heavily influenced by it, even if it's only subconsciously. That to me is where it's challenging and I, I have no answers, but it's something we at least have to think about and talk about. Well, look at, let's say film scores. I mean, how many times do are we seeing now, hey, I want something that's like John Williams. Or mm-hmm. I want, some, you know, it's like because I, I can't afford John Williams or now John Williams is obviously getting to the to the age where he's no longer going to be, you know, composing. Um, but one of the clearly one of the greatest composers of, of certainly of our lifetime. And there's others who have made a career sounding like John Williams or at least being heavily influenced by what he brought them. So but yet we we still find that that's artistic and respected because they're bringing their own humanity and their own voice to what was inspiration from another great. And certainly John Williams studied all the great classical composers. And so, so we, we clearly are doing derivatives to your point about, you know, uh, Warhol's quote. Um, but the systems that exist in these AI worlds could do it perfectly and replicate it almost one-to-one in, in microseconds. And again, what are they really bringing to the equation as a human that's asking for it? I'm not sure you really brought anything. The computer, in a way, did all the work. Um, so I don't know. That seems pretty lazy to me. Even though I think it helps accelerate processes, I hope it doesn't become just this crutch for laziness in the creative industry. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the one difference, or there are many, but the the significant difference is the ease at which you can do it now. Where if you want to spend a lifetime learning Tim Burton's style and emulating it, that still takes a tremendous amount of effort. If I want to do it now in a single prompt, that's a totally different world. Um, But having said that, I actually want to circle back almost to the beginning of this conversation. Now that we framed it around in order to stand out and create and have these ideas, whether the tool is AI or pen and paper, right? It's this combination of your life experiences, your work experiences, all the skills and abilities that you've learned. I'm not, you may know the answer to this question. You may not know the answer to this question. I don't know if anybody's ever asked it before. I don't know if you've thought about it before, but there is a lifetime of experience led to you making the choice. I want my first prompt to be a red monster looking at a candle with wonder. Why was that the prompt? Well, the, yeah. It kind of goes back to something I remember at the time Disney used to do. I'm going to, I would almost need to go back and exa- remember exactly where I got this from. 
So I'm going to probably butcher this slightly. So please don't quote me on this. There's probably we'll paraphrase. We'll- yeah, but there's no, I'm saying there's animators and historians out there that are be like, ah, you don't know your history. And I'm like, so I'm going to butcher this. I know slightly. But one of the original tests I remember was where you'd get a like a box, say a box. You could not use eyes. You could not put arms or any sort of limbs on it, but draw a box as a cube, but show me it sad. Show me it excited. Show me it like... So it's like this, everyone knows a square box, but how can you all of a sudden make that box look like it's conveying emotion? And that was like an early animator test. And so to me, it was like, well, I wasn't going to do that. I, I think I was like, I'm not, that's almost probably too hard. Let me at least try giving it a character and giving it a something where it's looking at it. So then, you know, I kind of gave it a, a, I put up, I put up some guardrails on that, that bowling lane, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. But that's kind of where it was coming from, is that notion of taking something and putting it in an animator test and saying, all right, let's see, let's see what you could do. So in the the point being that even to create that really, really simple test, yeah. there's a vast amount of background and education and understanding how a traditional animator learns how to emote visually with guardrails. So that's a big part of it. Yeah. Now I want to break the prompt into the three different pieces. And again, if you don't remember all of this, it's totally fine. It's just to me, it's a fascinating thought experiment. You've got a red critter, mm-hmm. you've got a candle, and you've got wonder. Why wonder? You wanted it to be an emotion. Why was it specifically wonder? Not sadness, happiness, anger. Yeah. There was probably a reason you chose wonder. Yeah, and I think it's also because that's what I was wondering myself when I was sitting at the mm. computer. I was like, this thing might be amazing. And it's like seeing fire for the first time. It's the, it, it was, in a way, a re- expression of what I was potentially feeling. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see if it could prove or, or realize that feeling. And and when I saw it, I definitely was somewhat amazed. Mm. So now now we're digging into really the how you brought the the subconscious human mind into this creative process to create this prompt. Yeah. So now the the fact that you chose fire is fascinating to me because it was a very primitive choice. Mm-hmm. Like you know what what would a caveman look like if he were looking at fire, right? And it, you made it wonder because that's what you were experiencing. Why a red critter? I am. I, you know, what's funny is because I had them. I do remember this. Remember the Bugs Bunny cartoon with the big red monster? It's the first thing I thought of when I saw the image was Bugs Bunny. I definitely know that it's a, it's much taller and wider yeah. than the one you yeah. did, but it looked almost it the same. Yes, it, it has like no neck and the head. It's just basically shoulders. Then with uh-huh. the and then, the you know, the arms. Yep. And. I kind of was like, huh, I wonder, like, I went back again to my animation background and I just thought, oh, what's an iconic character that would not be Bugs Bunny or like, I just didn't want to see Bugs Bunny. I didn't want to see it do a derivative of Donald Duck or something like that. Like, I wanted to, so I'm like, oh, Red Monster. All right, Mm. see what it does. Because that, I mean, I don't think that character, if I'm, gosh, man, I I, I think it's just, isn't it just a monster? I don't think Warner. It is. There, there's nothing specific about it. I can picture it instantly. Yeah, it's no, iconic to me. I don't know if they ever named it. No, I, I think, don't think so. Yeah, I think it was just like the. It was that red monster from. Uh-huh. Anyway, so that's where it was. It kind of came out of literally again going back to our minds, experience, mm-hmm. history, nostalgia, all these things, emotion in the moment. All of that turned into some sort of weird, you know, neurological soup in my head, which then turned into a prompt. Um, but that goes back to experience, history, 
feelings of, of at least how to write enough to maybe cons- convey some semblance of your own emotional history as well. Um, and then I think I at least knew enough about prompting at the get-go to say, don't dry, try to write a paragraph, just write a very simple sentence and let's see if mm-hmm. you can just handle that. Yeah. So there just, there literally is a lifetime of things happening to create that one simple prompt and a lifetime of education and experiences that led to the refinements of those prompts and the choice of the horns or, you know, changing this, this animal should be blue and not green. Like, again, this comes back to your personal creativity and you realizing a vision. You're just using a very different tool. And at least in my opinion, as long as the tool is not literally copying off of the the backs of other artists and stealing their artistry, this to me is another tool to embrace in our tool set. But it's going to be a pretty, pretty rapid evolution as we see these changes happen. So given that, there is a million more things that we could cover and we're pretty much out of time and I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything or one thing that you're like, we got to talk about this that's super important that must be addressed before we go today? Mm, one thing. Um, I'm gonna get. I'll leave you with, and for your your listeners, if you will, or viewers. One thing that I'm seeing, which I think is going to be the most revolutionary part of kind of this next digital future. Uh, you know, the we seventies and eighties were like they were our personal computer age. You know, we got desktop computers, the Macs, you know, so forth, PCs. The 90s to the 2000s were the beginning of the internet era and the internet age. Um, Digital connectivity, information basically democratized, instant, immediate. You know, going into these mid-2020s is going to be the beginning of the new AI age. And that's going to probably be one of the most rapid and revolutionary of these three digital eras that we've ever experienced. So for people to get ready for that, it's... It's going to change, you know, some of the, let's just say a change in their own kind of, uh, I hate this cliche, but it is a paradigm shift in many ways. And just, I'm going to give one example. We've used Photoshop forever. We've used Microsoft Word. We've used all these other different applications. And when we do that, it's great because they, they have tools and abilities to, let's say, Photoshop. I can put layers. I can bring in images. I can modify and distort and color correct and do all that and make a beautiful final composite image. But what it doesn't know is that image doesn't know what it is. It doesn't have any intelligence about what it is. And if I opened up another Photoshop file, it has no connectivity or connective tissue, if you will, or or relation to that other file. In the new world, when you start to create, it's going to know what you created or what you just created. And it's gonna know as you're creating the next thing, what are all the other things that you've created. And so it will be much more like the human mind. And it's like, oh, I know what you've written. I know what you've already visualized. I know what music you're thinking about. So as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, these systems are not going to be a, a bunch of disparate files anymore. It's going to almost be like this intelligent neural network of your creativity that is now talking to each other. And when we do that, and that starts to emerge, and we're on the very beginning of it now, is the process is going to be rewritten again in terms of how we even approach our own creative exploration. And some of the tools are just starting to come out in this kind of new way of thinking. 
Um, and there's some things I can start to show. So we, we should probably do a follow-up uh, on this soon. But Oh, we're going to be talking a lot more about this because yeah, I'm at the but, epicenter but, of wanting to do all of this. But it is a shift in just because, yeah, we've been in this world of individual files, individual and of file types where one program can only work with one file type or Photoshop can only work with images of these file types. We're going to go into a system in a world where modality is just ubiquitous and the programs can you know, read music just as much as they can read text, just as much as they can watch a video or create an image. And when you start to have programs that are more like that, and it's far more, just like you, are far more multidimensional than just one thing, um, you're going to have tools that allow you to create in that kind of multidimensional manner. And that's the verge. We're on the verge of that right now. And that's what's going to be incredibly exciting and also wild at the same time. Yeah, I agree. That's that's the part that I'm really excited about. Uh, and that's why I think that you and I will have a, a multitude of at least off the record conversations about custom GPTs and all of the intersection of all these technologies. And most likely it'll turn into an on the record part two at some point. I don't doubt um, but having said that, I do want to be respectful of your time. But before we go, if somebody is inspired by today, they want to learn more about the work that you're doing, they want to watch the film, they can go to your LinkedIn learning course. There's a lot of different ways to interact with you. And we're going to make sure we have links in the show notes. But if they wanted to pick one place to start the relationship, to start the conversation, to learn more, where's the best place to send people? I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. If you just type in uh, just Chad Nelson, comma, you could do Topgolf uh, or OpenAI. I think I come up first in one of those two. On Instagram, I have an account called Daily Dolly. And mm -hmm. you know, Dolly was the first AI tool I was really using in the very beginning. And I tried to post daily in the, in, in the start. Now I'm a little too busy. I try to get there almost every day. But uh, And remember, Dolly has a dot between the L and the E. So it's mm -hmm. like daily no space or no underscore doll, D-A-L-L dot E. But you'll probably yeah. have the comments. But yeah, that's... Yeah, well... And then that, and if you send me a DM in there, you know, I, I do try to respond to everyone. So um, unless you're spamming me for something, but I, mm -hmm. I do like that form for community conversation. So yeah. Yeah, my audience there. knows better than to spam you or send the link to their resume. At least I hope they know better. Uh, but or, I, or, I highly... Or, or, or please... Try my software and, and, you know, like I would love for your feet. I'm like, yeah, you're just spamming me with like anime, like, but yeah, no, I like, I love having real conversation though with people. Great. So I'll make sure that we put links because learn from me. You don't want to put Chad Nelson in a search engine because there are a lot of Chad Nelson's. That was a big mistake doing my research. I'm like, Ooh, that's probably not going to work. Lots of Chad Nelson's out there. So I'll make sure we find the there's right the one. wedding photographer. There's the truck driver. <laughs> you already the, know all of them. I love there's, it. There, there's the BMX, like our motocross expert. There's like, like, I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a number of them. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, the show notes are going to be a repository <laughs> of those resources so they don't make the mistakes that I do. But Chad, uh, so glad that we were able to overcome some of the obstacles to make this happen. I uh, love this conversation. To be honest, I can't wait to listen to it in five years. Oh, we're going to laugh. Yeah, of course we are, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that internet thing, that's not going to take off. That's a fad, yeah. right? All those things, you go back to the 90s and you hear comments about it. So well, we'll see what we have to say. But at least for now, yeah. um, I'm hoping this is valuable and helping people navigate what are my next steps? What should I be focused on next? So I'm, uh, I'm hoping that we could at least uh, do that for now. So can't thank you enough for being here. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much, Zach. 
Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.